Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Alim Mahaber, your host for this episode. Today, we are very grateful to be joined by Flora Samuel. Flora Samuel is Professor of Architecture at the University of Cambridge. She helped set up the new School of Architecture at the University of Reading and is former head of the University of Sheffield School of Architecture and the first Reba Vice President for Research. The author of Why Architects Matter, Evidencing and Communicating the Value of Architects, she has spent the last decade researching the positive impact of good design on people. Her interests are now moving to land use and social justice, both key to addressing climate change. She is well known as an industry advisor on the social value of the design of housing and places and a strong advocate of social value mapping. She is also known for her unorthodox writings on Le Corbusier, about whom she has published extensively. A mother of three daughters, she is based in Wales. A, a very, very warm welcome to the podcast, Flora. Very happy to be talking to you about housing for hope and well-being. First off, could you please tell me a little bit more about yourself and what experiences prompted you to write the book we're featuring today? Okay, well, um, Alim, thank you very much for having me here uh, today. I am a professor in architecture at the University of Cambridge, and um, I research in community consultation and housing and issues relating to uh, social justice and equality, which I'm very passionate about. I think that social justice is really fundamental to addressing the climate change emergency. And I was prompted to write this book, well, partly because... um, Access to housing, affordable housing, is such a, a desperate issue in here in the UK and across the world. Um, uh, but also, I, it, in, in my own personal experiences, somebody who's been fighting the planning system uh, in my own street, in my experience of my family finding places to live, my experience of young people in Britain having a, a really terrible time trying to find um accommodation that they feel secure in and they can build a life in. So uh, um, I was prompted to write this book, both from a professional point of view and and really from a personal point of view as well. Right. I um, definitely relate to that point. Being from the younger generation, um, maybe getting older in age, I've also, you know, feel that the dream of home ownership is so out of reach. 
and housing in many countries, uh, it really doesn't inspire much hope at all, especially for the younger generations. Uh, so is this a reason why you you set out to write a book that is so optimistic and hopeful? Well, yeah, I... Um... I mean, yes, in, on the face of it, the situation is pretty terrible. Um, but I see all around me these sort of shoots of good things that are going on, that if um, they were put together, they could be so much more than the sum of their parts. And I put the word hope into the book because I think there is a whole swathe of books coming through now, which imagine a world after neoliberalism, a world after capitalism, um, that are sort of envisioning how the world could be. And I wanted to make a book that provided a vision of how house, the housing and planning system could be for the UK and, and hopefully in inspiration for people in other places. Um, because Particularly because the um, picture is so dark at the moment and you have to have something that you can... Um, hold in your mind as what might be possible because really with the right political will and good use of technology and um and taking a uh, building on uh, some some fantastic work that's already going on you know we could have a, a fair housing system and we could have housing in which people could settle for their lives and feel secure um it just it, it just takes some small adjustments and levers so I also, um, I mean, the, the word hope has a slightly spiritual, religious meaning behind it. Um, the book is about helping people um, experience eudaimonic well-being, which is a sense of um, happiness, which is when you feel that, the, that there's something bigger at work in your life, that you're part of a bigger system. And that's obviously got sort of spiritual and religious um, thoughts behind that. So I wanted to... In a way, encourage people to feel that there was uh, um, something bigger at work in all of this. Um, and there are a lot of books, Stephen Pinker's work, for example. You know that we are moving towards. If you look at society overall, I mean, um, it seems overall, although we're in dark times now, that uh, many things are moving forward in a good direction. Um, you, you mentioned eudaimonic well-being. I, I thought. Well, in reading the book, this seems to be one of the main, I'm not sure if you could call it a metric of success in, in terms of what you would like housing to provide um, to the people who inhabit um, their homes and neighborhoods. Uh, could you elaborate on more on eudaimonic well-being and why you emphasize this rather than other ways of, of looking at um housing success, and even other ways of looking at well-being. Why eudaimonic well-being? Well, it's because eudaimonic well-being is, the, is, is widely recognised by people who study science, uh, the science of happiness and well-being. It's widely recognised as being the best form of well-being when you feel a sense of, the, uh, of a, that you're part of a bigger order of things and that what you do is contributing to something beyond yourself. This is the, 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 one, this is the one that makes you feel the most well-being, really. So that's why I put emphasis on it. But for me, the metric of um, success in terms of uh, housing, and it's a very strong theme within the book, is that all housing should deliver on uh, social uh, value, economic value, environmental value, and also, I think, uh, 
increasingly, I would say, cultural value. These things are, are, are metrics. And if you can balance these things out um, and achieve housing that delivers on all of them, then you might just start getting a balanced housing system. The whole thing in the book is about um, a balanced planning system, which actually looks at the value being generated in places. And I don't mean economic value, I mean social value and environmental and economic, because they've all got to be seen together as one. Um, And I suppose I have this um, naive hope that if we uh, have evidence that uh, policymakers and others might actually um, follow through on that to um, make things better. If there's evidence of how things are now um, and you can measure progress, there's an incentive there in, to build those things into laws, into policy, into procurement. So you might just finally get better outcomes. Because quite a lot of the time in the housing system, the only outcome that's being measured is economic value, you know, how cheap they were and how big the um, profit was made by the developer. Um, But if we could build other values into the system, then you might be able to get um, a more holistic, uh, genuinely well-being orientated um, housing system. And this is all becoming much, much easier uh, as a technology advances and we can um, g- gather data out of quite complicated bits of information and increasingly, of course, use artificial intelligence uh, and other things to unravel things that in the past were, were quite difficult to count and measure. Um, so the book is a lot about measuring systems and it's not that I'm I'm the last person to be obsessed about measuring and counting things but I'm, um, I've been in this game long enough to know that if you don't measure and count things, they will be ignored in an audit culture, which is the kind of world we live at the moment, which is a culture of measuring and valuing things. So sorry, it was a rather long answer, but uh, it's less. Uh, the book is really about balancing social, environmental and, and economic um, value as a way forward in housing. It was a long answer, but it was a very good one. Um, Thanks. But, well, I, I think you mentioned in the book those three values you stated to be the triple bottom of sustainability, right? Right. Um, hmm, I, I would ask, right, uh, given that there's a housing crisis uh, in the UK, many, many countries throughout the world, um, maybe someone might um, instead posit, you know, we should just build the most amount of homes we can in the shortest amount of time. We shouldn't worry about eudaimonic uh, community well-being. Why, why we focus on social and environmental value? But why this, I want to ask you, why this is the wrong way to go? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we all have lived experience of why this is the wrong way to go. And there are very visible examples all over the globe of people who've been um, moved out of their inner city um, maybe you might call it slum housing, and put into uh, housing outside of the city, which is far too far away from their job, too far away from their network, too far away from their family. It's built in a way that doesn't fit with their culture or, or with the way that they cook. You know, it makes people unhappy, makes people uh, unhealthy. Um, so it's just really not a question of delivering on numbers of homes. It had. Um, Homes have to be delivered intelligently in the right place 
in, in to be suitable to people's lifestyles and using minimal materials, you know, with the environment in mind. Um, otherwise, you get the waste of uh, of um, developments that are just not used or become empty or fall down or have to be rebuilt and that we all know so many of those i mean the crazy thing is in britain that we do have actually enough housing accommodation for everybody in britain it's just a matter of distribution um yeah we we don't really need to build anything and if we didn't wouldn't that be great for the environment if we didn't build everything and we just redistributed the space so that everybody had somewhere to live but that's not going to happen. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, yeah, the book I suppose is a uh, um, really pushing that it's just not enough to build numbers of houses. Um, you have to build good houses, um, and I think we all have experience of why why that matters. No, definitely. Um, well, you point out the the, the many problems that. Um, related to housing, the housing regime in the UK. And uh, as you noted, um, I think in a previous response and throughout the book, uh, there is a problem of reducing housing to, to quantities, you know. But just to better contextualize the issue, especially for those who might not be familiar um, with the housing situation in the United Kingdom, um, what are the problems with the housing sector? Or what is the nature and extent of the challenges that um, it faces and that people face in accessing housing in the UK? Okay, well, that's a very good question. I mean, there, there are many things wrong with the system here, but I suppose the two primary ones are that um, the UK has followed a system whereby um, housing has become a financial investment. And so, uh, in some parts of this society in the UK celebrate when house values go up because they feel that their money is going up. And of course, the UK has become a big a place for foreign investment and um, uh, a lot of housing in Britain is, and particularly inside London, is being bought by overseas investors who just use it as an investment vehicle. So this has driven the price of um, housing up um, to the point when it's really almost impossible to buy a house. Um, the ratio of what your income is to the cost of the house or um, flat is just so different. Particularly bad, of course, in London, uh, which, of course, in London means that people who are the key workers, the nurses, the farm and all those kind of things or anybody with a low income job really has incredible struggle finding anywhere to live. Um, so, I mean, that's the, 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 the primary thing is, is the way that house prices have been allowed to accelerate. But the other thing is that we used to have a housing system um, which was. We, after the war, it was it was it was something to be proud of that homes were being built for heroes. People were um, uh, there was a huge council house and local authority housing program. Um, and okay, some of the buildings were not that great, but at least they were building homes for people. Uh, but all this came to a stop uh, when the Conservative government came in, in around 1979, and they um, pretty much stopped local authority housing. And they set up a, a law which is called right to buy. So people who were living in these local authorities' houses could then buy them very cheaply. And so and very, very many of these local authority houses have now gone to private sector landowners who are then renting them back 
for, for a, a great deal of profit. So there's, a, um, there's been a lot of emphasis on building the private landlord sector, and the private landlord sector has really um, not delivered on the homes that people need. Um, and, um, you know, certainly, and certainly not delivered environmentally as well. So um, the UK is not a whole. There are four different countries in it, Scotland, England, um, Northern Ireland and Wales, and they all have very different planning systems. Uh, and Scotland and, Eng- and Wales have got rid of this right to buy. So they're now starting to build local authority housing, which stays within the system. But it's still... Um, right to buy still exists in England. So as fast as a local authority can build housing, and and they have been encouraged to build housing uh, a little bit more now, uh, but as fast as they can build and they get sold off. So we're really lacking in in Britain any kind of state-provided housing. Um, And so um, the the welfare bill to the government is absolutely enormous uh, because a lot of people are living in very insecure bed and breakfast accommodation and inadequate um, inadequate private rental sector accommodation, um, which is mouldy and not healthy and uh, and really very bad. So, um, I mean, these are the two main things. There are many things in Britain um, which uh, are, are working against people trying to have whole, uh, affordable housing. Um, uh, but I would say those are the two principal ones. I was surprised to learn about the sheer number of issues in the UK in reading your book. I was also surprised by, by the fact that the UK doesn't have a complete land registry. I think one statistic that you referenced states that uh, 17% of England and Wales remain unregistered. And yes. There's also very little cross-correlating of data sets and seems to be little collaborative planning between government departments. Why is this still the case in the UK today? And what are its implications? Well, the, the situation is that the the, the local authorities, um, they have had successive year on in cuts and cuts and cuts and cuts to their finances, uh, all um, getting even worse after the banking bailout around 2007 and the financial crash. So years and years of austerity. Um, So there's just been incredibly little investment in the planning system Um, and uh, incredibly little investment in the kind of knowledge infrastructure of the the country. Um, And I say the country here, I'm talking about England, because as I say, Wales and other countries of the UK are doing quite a lot better job. but yeah, so yes, it's just a starving of the infrastructure, really. Um, hence the fact that and the and a, and a, a sort of shift towards the private sector, privatisation being a central kind of theme within um, the neoliberal system that kicked in around nineteen eighties, uh, which means that everything's very complicated uh, when things. Some things are private, some things are public. Lots of people are duplicating work in different places. They don't know what each other are up to. So there's just this lack of coordination that's going on, which uh, I argue could really uh, be helped by through the making of a very comprehensive and transparent um, data map system. But yeah, so it's everything's become fragmented, I would say, um, and being sold off and... Uh, make it very difficult to do any kind of uh, strategic, holistic action about anything. 
Um, is that changing? Is is there a recognized need for more investment in the housing sector or in planning? Um, is what you're seeing and the policies you recommend um, seeing any um, you know uptake? Yeah, well, we're um, we're working really hard to try and get. Um, the vision in the book across is a my research group and the people that I work with uh, for a for a data and um, map based planning system, and things are moving in that direction. Um, there's a, the development of a geospatial commission in Britain, uh, starting to look at the way that data Britain thinks about its data. The government um, is in England is trying to um, help the local authorities become more. To go through what they're calling the digital transformation to make them more um, uh, technology orientated because the technology could make a planner's job immensely more effective and much, much quicker and also less subjective, uh, which would take risk out of the process for people trying to do development because they would be able to pre- predict with some sort of sense of what, what the planning office actually might want. Um, so yeah, there are very small shifts on in this, but they're just not radical enough. They're kind of, uh, uh, and I'm just uh, answering a government consultation at the moment on a, a new a new planning system. And you just think, oh, if we could only if we could only make a really big shift and say this is how it's going to be done. It's going to be holistic. It's going to be plan based. Then it might cost a bit of money in the first instance. Then, it, um, but after that, it, it would all become a lot more simple and straightforward. So desperate need for investment but i think i mean the the the, the various in- professional institutions they're all really saying that the system is pretty much broken um, and something's got to change and i think the government is 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 running out of ideas as well um well the government being one that wants to keep um pursuing um uh sort of neoliberal values um because despite the fact that they are on the face of it delivering policies that um, are market-led, the back end of it all is that they're actually spending an awful lot of money on welfare, but in in rather inefficient ways through bread and breakfast accommodation and uh, very large amounts of expenditure on the national health system and so on. So um, I think we're at a, um, I think everyone thought that the pandemic would be a real watershed moment when everything would change. Um, but things seem to come back rather similar to normal. Um, but I think uh, um, things are really coming to a head now, especially especially as around the climate crisis. You know, we're all experiencing the hottest day the world has ever seen lately. Um, you know, I think that I think that uh, there's growing recognition that um, government action is needed because it cannot come from the private sector. It just cannot and it never will. It's been coming from the private sector for, what what did you say, since the maybe 80s, 90s, and obviously it's not working. It's not working. (laughs) So something definitely definitely needs to be done, Uh, I guess, out or outside of the existing neoliberal order, because what's being done within that order is simply not working. No, no, what certainly, well, it's not working for anybody who is um, at the lower end of the income scale, for sure. Right, De- well, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and in it's Britain, working pretty... 
as I should say, oh, sorry, one important thing to register about Britain is about 35, 38% of people live in rental accommodation. So they're the ones who are suffering. And that's quite a big sector. Right. I, I was just going to say it's definitely working for those who benefit from the speculative housing sector, um, the elites or the aristocracy, probably of the UK and other countries, um, but definitely not those who um, who, who rent to um, vulnerable populations as well. Uh, one, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, I think you touch, it, touch on it at a point in the book, is how... Are historical inequities in property ownership reflected in the UK housing system today? And are there any new approaches to housing that aims to accommodate these um, vulnerable populations and accommodate diversity in housing delivery? Um, well, in terms of historical inequities, I mean, I could talk about this at length. <laughs> um, please, please do. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, you know. Um, before Britain went out and um, grabbed land across the colonies and everywhere else, it you know it grabbed land from its own citizens um, um, and taking back the commons. It, you know, people they fenced in the commons and people had nowhere to live and work. And a lot of this fencing in of the commons of the land in Britain, um, it, it, a lot was by the aristocracy. Is that land is still owned by the aristocracy today? Uh, which is one of the reasons, and you mentioned the land registries, they've never been registered because they've owned that land for so long um, and they don't pay tax on it. So they can sit on this enormous amount of land, not 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 um, not costing them much, uh, but it's a sort of dead space uh, that's obstructing development and diversity, uh, in, in particularly in rural areas in Britain. So, um, and of course, within uh, the, the, the aristocracy, a very large amount of land ownership and is, uh, was based on the slave trade, which is a, a shameful fact. And many of the aristocracy of Britain are still living on vast piles of money that they gained from the slave trade. And uh, London University has an amazing uh, website, The Legacy of Slavery, um, on that front. And then there's the uh, other historical inequity, which is around um, gender, really. So women were not allowed to own land and uh, until very recently in Britain. Um, and even nowadays with the aristocracy, it's still there's still a law of primogeniture. So uh, very enormous estate, um, the Grosvenor estate, uh, um, was inherited by the son, but even though he was the younger son, leaving the, even the, the older sisters were not allowed to inherit this vast estate, uh, making Hugh Grosner the one of the youngest and most eligible bachelors in the world. So um, that's that impacts on 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 females um, too. So vast range of um, historical inequities have got us to the situation where we're in right now. And I think that there are, but there are very positive kind of emerging movements around recommoning, taking back the land. In Scotland, communities are buying their land back. Um, around trespassing, there's just been a very big um, high court success story where people have been fighting for their rights to uh, camp and um, move around. Uh, Dartmoor, which is in the west of um, England. In Scotland, you can walk, you have the right to roam. You can walk anywhere you like in Scotland as long as you're not causing a great inconvenience to a landowner. Um, but I think that there's a real 
anger starting to bubble up around access to land and 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 real positive change coming forward as well uh, as people are wanting to make their own community housing cooperative housing that's really starting to grow as a sector um, so some really positive changes coming out of all of this. But I think it, people don't, you know, for example, we have a new king in Britain um, and I don't think people associate, um, and the king is, of course, I think the big, biggest landowner in, in Britain uh, and would have had the biggest farming subsidies um, uh, uh where some farming subsidies have existed. Uh, Brexit has changed that a little bit over here. But I don't think people really kind of put together all these things and see that this is where we're head, uh, all of this injustice has led to a housing system where young people can't find anywhere to live or build a family or anything like that. So it's um, yeah, complicated um, historical lineage, uh, but I think one that I wish that young people would be angry about really. Oh, I'm angry. I'm Good. definitely angry. <laughs> Good. Yeah, well, and then we need action, don't we, too? Uh, it, it's hoped that uh, eventually, well, hopefully, uh, this anger translates in, into some sort of collective action on the part of the younger generations. I, I think it, there definitely seems to be something um, brewing, you know, and... It, I think so, Yeah. We, I think there, there, there's a, a recognized need that uh, we, we want more. Um, what's been, you know, promised to uh, past generations is something that we certainly have not been privy to, and there is this deep sense of injustice, and um, deservedly so felt by many um, younger generations. Uh, I, I feel, I feel it not even being in the UK. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it is. It is. I mean, it's it's uh, an incredibly um, raw deal that this current generation have been um, landed with. Um, uh, but uh, and research shows that uh, certainly in the UK, it's the younger generation are incredibly worried about climate change, for example, and really want the opportunity to do something about it. So I suppose in some sense, my book is also about helping people get involved and, and get started and and to make a, a built environment where people can do small contributions and make small changes. Right. Uh, I think one of the concepts you would have touched on and I found it really interesting was the idea of urban rooms um, to, to get the community involved and true urban rooms you would have done eco-social asset mapping. Hmm. Could you expand on this? Like, I found it really interesting. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, so it's it's not rocket science by any means, but what we... Um, um, we My work sort of started really with a, a project that we did to map what was going on in an estate in uh, Reading, in, which is near London in the UK. Uh, and... Um, we want we made maps with communities to show what they valued in their area, what contributed to their quality of life, and we use there are these things called the Quality of Life Foundation indicators, and we so you map where you feel um, you connect with nature, where you take exercise, where you connect with other people, and then you could make these hotspot maps which showed really very vividly what you know where people were, what places in the area were contributing to their well-being. 
And um, we believe that those community-made maps should be combined with the sort of administrative published maps from the census and censors and um, the things, the, the loyalty cards from shops and all of that stuff that you should see, make a huge sandwich of data to start getting a, a, an impression of what's actually happening in any particular place so that was a project around making maps of people and we really found that people love making maps they really felt they engage with it and you know you can easily get make these maps in a digital format and could use those to uh, inform planning and in, indeed voting on planning decisions um, in Iceland in Reykjavik they they do a lot of this thing participatory uh, budgeting where people choose they vote i'd rather spend the money on this than that and i think and hope that this is where things are going um but yeah and so the urban room is is just a place to do this this mapping activity uh uh i've tried to uh traditionally it's 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 um urban but i i'm now starting to do research work around it being in rural areas because uh you know you cannot look around the city without looking at the rural areas uh, and it's just a place um where people come in and talk about the future of their cities with local authorities with university with industry with practice to, to have a proper conversation and it needs to be a face to face one we found We've uh, done a whole series of experimental urban rooms and we're just about to set up a major one in Cambridge where I work. Um, but we found that people really enjoy coming and having a chat, particularly older people or lonely people, um, and uh, inputting into the maps where they're doing it digitally or, or by hand through drawing. And so an urban room is a place to encourage that kind of debate, but it needs to be somewhere exciting. You need the arts and humanities in there, poetry, music. You need things that attract people in to get them starting to talk about their places. And um, so that's what we're trying to develop. Is There's a network of urban rooms in Britain, the Urban Room Network, um, but in my work in, in Cambridge, we're going to try to have uh, maybe one physical centre, but the other ones are sort of pop-up things that happen all over the place. Um, Cambridge is the most unequal city in Britain. Um, and so, you know, we have to go out into the uh, places where the inequality is to find out uh, what people are feeling out there. Um, so uh, there's a lot of government... Um, um, I think the government wants to make consultation on planning. And, and actually, I know we're lucky in Britain to have any consultation on planning because in some places, I've worked in the Philippines, for example, you know, you, there isn't really any. Um, but um, they want to make it all digital. But that uh, I think we've proved through our work that you really need to have face-to-face -face places where people can talk about this stuff as well. And in my work, I really want to get... Um, kids involved and young people because they're the most disenfranchised people uh, and get them gathering data on their lived experience and putting them into maps and asking for, for better places. So this is the idea of the urban room, really. It's just a place for talking together. You know, and it shouldn't be rocket science. It should be just like sensible. But um, that's the current name, buzzword name for it. No, but I, I, I really love it. Uh, and it, it is really simple and I, I I love it because I I, I myself come from uh, a place in the Caribbean, Trinidad and Tobago, and uh, like many other places, it's and as you mentioned in the Philippines, it's really top down, and people often don't get the opportunity um, to have participation or have a voice in their community, and oftentimes they, they, it's simply no space to do that, 
And if there is an option, for example, like a community forum, it's often just done as a, a sort of checklist item. There's something that you need to, to, to just get rid of, not actually taking on people's actual opinions and what they have to contribute and how they could, um, you know, take an a, a empowered say and how they want the community to be. So it, it's, it's a concept I really love, and I would love to see that implemented um, where I'm from and, and I guess even more in the UK because I'm just having an environment where people feel that they do have a voice, I think can be so powerful in getting people to care about their community. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And having a sense of um, um, autonomy, as they call it in the well-being literature, has a huge impact on your health and well-being. If you feel you've got some sense of um, agency in your in your area and in your place, and of course you end up then having a place that's more. I mean, there's always going to be debates between different people who want different things. Um, But uh, you're always going to end up with a place that's a bit more um, fit for purpose than you would otherwise. I mean, I found it really, when we were doing the work in the Philippines, I found it very shocking um, when, you know, you'd have a very functional, informal settlement place. Uh, and people would sort of say, oh, there's nothing there. And clearly there was a really very strong community with all sorts of things going on. Um, so I, I became very keen at that point that we, you know, we should map and, and give, um, uh, you know, take seriously these places that people have made for themselves. There's also a lot of problems around, um, you know, sustainability measurements. You know, sometimes people will put a sustainable, so-called sustainable tower block onto a really onto an existing community, and that's called sustainable. When clearly it's not sustainable at all because it's wiped out a whole community. So there's all sorts of strange things going on in this area and things that we do need to discuss. As you touch on autonomy, um, one of the things you also look at is how housing and neighborhoods, if designed well, could provide for self-actualization, a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, really integral aspects of living that seem to be out of touch for so many of us. Um, I'm wondering if you could uh, elaborate on how you envision housing, you know, can be done uh, in such a way to enable the pursuit of, of all of this. Mm. Yes. So um, I kind of break I break down um, uh, social value well-being um, into kind of categories in the book. And I go through sort of different um, into different categories of different things that contribute to your well-being. For example, a, a relationship with nature, getting out there, whatever. And autonomy, um, self-actualization is one of the sections, uh, one of the chapters. And I, um, and I, I suppose I refer to quite a bit of psychoanalytical theory in that book, or people, or the work of, uh, or people like the, the analytical psychologist Carl Jung, who, who who kind of used building his own home as a way of um, um, supporting his own individuation, his own personal uh, de- development. And I think that homes uh, have to offer you opportunities to make them your own, really, to paint them and decorate them and grow things and 
um, do the kind of things you like to do, have the parties or the celebrations or whatever. You need to be able to do those things in your home to develop into your into your um, to be your best self, really. Uh, and so, um, for that to happen, you don't necessarily need a fancy home or a huge amount of space. In fact, research shows that very rich people very rapidly get you know, the pleasure they derive from their homes. Very tails off after quite you know once after they've got their basic needs provided for it kind of tails off it. Um, you just you just need a kind of basic space with enough flexibility in it and some things that every every human being needs like good good natural light good ventilation you know um, good contact with nature and greenery. I mean more than anything else, contact with nature and greenery has the most incredible well it's not incredible it makes absolute sense uh but if you don't have contact with nature and greener it's just so such a deprivation to your own self-development so i kind of make i go through this a series of sort of factors that i think are important for individuals to be able to develop and then in the next chapter i go on to, into a series of things that i think are important for kind of communities to develop to develop narratives about themselves um and what they want to be um, yes, so it's just so important to have power over your life and to feel that you can, yeah, you can you can make somewhere your own, and you also you feel safe there. I mean, like we should never forget safety, because um, you can't do any of that without feeling safe. One of the concepts that you also talked about, um, sort of related to that, and you know, having more you know, power and autonomy in your community and just more ability to access services um, is the idea of the 20-minute city, or as you call it, the 20-minute community uh, mm -hmm. in your book. I think I've also heard the idea of a 15-minute city as well. Um, yes. Well, how do you build on the 20-minute on city concept um, in relation to what you talk about in the book? Yes. Well, yeah, there are various sort of buzzwords around that 15 minute uh, neighborhood, uh, city, neighborhood. I use community because I always think of neighborhood as being something very close to where I live, you know, as opposed to 15 minutes away. And of course, this concept is very contested by people in wheelchairs and, um, you know, is it car, is it bicycle, who's it for? Um, and But it's basically the sense that you can get to all the primary things you need within 15 minutes um and i argue that somebody needs to work out what that is what does that look like a basic measure of it because if you're going to make a stipulate stipulate um uh every, somebody's going to have to make a 15 minute neighborhood or a 20 minute neighborhood then it can be uh, you need it needs to be backed up with measures, and the map and the maps could very intelligently work out what a fifteen or twenty minute neighbour ought to look like. We're not really there with the technology to work it out yet. In Oxford, in England, they've just had a they've tried to make um, to do work in this zone, and it's been caused a kind of public social media uproar because they've been closing off streets and opening others up in the name of sustainability, but it hasn't quite. Um, um, 
I think it's a bit too early for, to, to, to put these things upon people. But what I like about the uh, 15 or 20 minute neighborhood is this idea of like um, breaking things down into small units. Um, you know, politicians and other people love to say we built this giant airport or we built this giant hospital or whatever. But I think during the pandemic, people really saw that they needed local things, local health provision uh, and so on. And indeed, having local things are particularly important for people on low incomes who can't travel far away to that hospital or, or whatever. Um, they can just so they can just pop in. But so uh, I think it's a nice idea. Uh, I think we've got to we've got to measure it out find a way of defining it and measuring it and um, use it as a principle behind things to make um, smaller uh, uh, interventions into places. And one of the, another thing I like about the maps, and there's a lovely example of Newham Council in London, where they've made a map of all the kind of little interventions that they've done around the place. And it looks like such an intent, uh, so much more than all the little parts be, um, when you see a map of lots of little things that have made lots of difference to lots of people's lives rather than one giant thing. I mean, I know you do sometimes need a hospital which has got the top doctors for cancer or whatever, but um, we also need the other kinds um, of small interventions as well. And another research project I've been working on um, um uh, the, people, the community partners there have been working. They have this, there's a great high levels of obesity in the area amongst young kids. And they just, they found through their research that it was just a question, well, in the kids weren't going to playgrounds because the parents didn't have anywhere to sit. And it was just really a question of uh, putting a few extra benches in the playgrounds for parents to sit on, enabled the kids to go out to play more. And I think that there, it's these very small interventions that can just have really big effects on people's lives. Um, for me, those are a part of the 15-minute, 20-minute um, community thing. But really, uh, people, um, govern, governance of places should be done at the... As, as close to the place as possible at the smallest possible level. Um, and so I argue that rather than having a, a local authority, which is quite large, you're better off with lots and lots and lots of these small communities, um, which then answer to maybe a larger city-state or some sort of regional um, form of governance. There's a lot of discussion in Britain at the moment about governance, uh, at what level it, or how large scale the political organisations should be. So it's a, it's an interesting territory, which is shifting for sure over here. Yeah, I, I definitely think that, you know, scaling down government governance to the neighbourhood or community level could definitely have a, a more benefits uh, in terms of um, able, able to develop local policy to meet local people's needs. I think that's something you could definitely, definitely um, facilitate more, especially if you have more participatory forms of um, local governance in place. Um, what you mentioned, the, the mapping being one of them and the urban rooms. There's definitely a lot of merit in the 15-minute city or 20-minute um, community concept, as you say. I, I've, I would love to see um, that being developed develop more and and maybe uh implemented more um like you yes but, yes well i i think we're coming up on time so to to sort of conclude um sort of similar to how you conclude your book i, I want to ask you what 
is your sort of vision for what a housing system for hope and well-being looks like? What is your wish list, so to speak, in terms of the policies that um, you think is is needed to to address the inequities and problems in housing um, in the UK and beyond, if you like? And what what do you think um, you would like to see um, being done in the ideal world? Well, yeah, in, in an ideal world, I think um, the thing that would sort of um, change everything in Britain would be if they actually started taxing land um, because that would bring in a lot of income um, and it would stop people sitting on large chunks of land, uh, which would immediately free up a lot of things. Um, and I think actually uh, building, the, the value of buildings needs to be separated from the land upon which they sit. Um, I don't think anyone has the right to own land. For me, it's, I feel this politically, but I feel this quite a sort of passionate, sort of in the, the depth of my core, the land is not for anybody to own. You know, it's always got to be there for the common good. So a land tax, many, many British government uh, um, politicians over the years, uh, most recently Jeremy Corbyn, who lost the last election um, f- for Labour, but they they were all uh, pushing for this land tax. So that could change everything quite rapidly um, and really pushing up the uh, production of um, local authority financed housing. In Vienna, in Austria, 65% of people live in local authority housing. It's, there's no stigma to it whatsoever. It's just seen as an absolutely normal thing. And I think that's what we really need. Um, in a system that so, that so favours privatisation like the UK, this could also be done by the pension funders. If the pension funders actually uh, decided to... Um, put their pension funds into the delivery of low-cost housing. That could also be another great thing. Um, I mean, you'd think they would have a stake in thinking about how ageing population and kind of places they're going to live. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll get involved. Uh, um, We also need local authorities to rent land to people who want to build cooperative housing. Um, There's a beautiful example in Spain, La Borda, which where the local authority rented that land. And that makes it possible for communities then to build their own houses, um, which works really, really well. So, I mean, there are lots of simple things uh, which um, could be done um, to change to change housing. But I, I argue for the whole, uh, the pl- planning system as a whole needs to be based on data and evidence. So we actually do things uh, so where things are needed at the moment there's a lot of guesswork going on um, uh, and everywhere you, you address something in one place a problem pops up in another uh, and so you need to look at the the, the landmass in a holistic way uh, and, and gather data la- uh, data layers on all sorts of things um, to enable that to happen um, in Wales where I live they have data map Wales which has 2,500 layers of data about Wales, which is quite impressive. But a lot of it is not easy for people to read. So we need a system whereby all that data gets into a format that the public can engage with and and, uh, um, comment on um, because everything's too top-down and everything, uh, things 
knowledge resides with the experts uh, and not so much with the community. Well, the community has their own kind of knowledge and that doesn't get to the experts. So, yeah, I argued for this 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 map based system, which will reveal inequality, will reveal where things are needed um, and will reveal if an area is hotting up too much in terms of house prices or um, uh, it doesn't have enough social value in that place. Then you could build playgrounds and affordable housing and things and you could raise up the social value in that area because the map shows that's what's needed. Um, so, yeah, I'm asking for this evidence based um kind of system and within that system to not be too fierce about what's built here or there in britain there's a lot of discussion you know do we want buildings to all look that like they're georgian or something like that you know uh, so particular aesthetics should they be coded should they all be made of brick um i don't think that matters personally i think we what we need to know say is in this area we need buildings that give us environmental value we need more green in that area and that area we need more economic value we need to have more you know, commercial uh, opportunities. Um, so it's it's just a it's a vision of balancing up through the maps, and we have the technology. Just the investment is needed, and then within the actual urban design of of na- well, not urban design of neighbourhoods and areas, um, <clears throat> opportunities need to be built in for people where people can get involved, uh, make things happen. Um, there's a lovely example in uh, the north of England, in, in Todmorden, where all of the planting and everywhere is built is food. People have been growing vegetables everywhere, and that, that those vegetables are available for anybody to eat or help themselves to. You know, uh, we have tremendous food poverty in Britain. Um, uh, many many people are going to food banks for f- free food now in Britain. Uh, you know, food is a huge issue. So. I believe that there are government levers around tax and then there are planning levers around um, evidence to show what's needed and where. And then we need a a housing system that's pushing out housing through the local authorities, which is genuinely affordable. And it needs to be housing that's all across the British landmass because far too much is concentrated, uh, power and opportunity investment is concentrated in London. Uh, which is almost like another country compared to the rest of the UK. Um, so um, I believe there are many things that that can be done. And then there are places that the communities need to be able to feel that they have the opportunity, places where people can get together, places where people can make things happen, um, and places where people can look after nature. Um, I, I use this thing, the capabilities approach, uh, which is, um, you know, we need places that foster people's capabilities so that they can become their best selves. So that's a bit of a summary for quite a, quite a bit of stuff. Well, I, for one, hope that these, these policies um, that embody a vision of hope um, for housing is something that, you know, is picked up that hopefully policymakers, those in government, read your book and are able to address these um, really existential problems when it comes to housing and how it affects people's lives and do make it better, do make um, homes, communities, neighborhoods, um, you know, fit for purpose and people are able to enjoy the autonomy and um, empowerment that comes from homes (laughs) and their community. Um, I love talking with you, Flora. 
it was like it was an amazing conversation i'm so glad you're able to talk to me about housing for hope and well-being as we close i just want to ask um is there any uh anything else you'd like to feature anything you're working on that you'd like to um talk about before we leave um any new work any new work well i've just been uh, very exciting you got a very very large chunk of uh, uh, research grant funding to do a big mapping like the, the one I've described of Anglesey, which is North Wales, which is an island. It's very rural. Uh, and we're excited because we're starting to you. Um, um, we're going to be making cultural maps um, using arts and poetry and all this kind of things coming in um, because North Wales has a very strong Celtic tradition of bards, of people who go around singing and telling stories of the place and we're actually hiring a bunch of bards so they're going to be making songs and poetry with people which we're then going to make into data using all the clever data analysis stuff that goes on in Cambridge so I think it's I just wanted to mention that because you know there's yeah there's nothing too different we're moving into times when uh, you know things you never thought could be measured could be measured uh, and it's kind of exciting. I never thought you could measure that. Um, <laughs> maybe you need to write a book about that next. Um, and I'd love to have you on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you up on that. Uh, where can people find housing for hope and well-being, and, and where they can find you as well if they need to? Oh well, I mean the book's available in all the usual stores. Um, and uh, um, uh, I'm 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 at the University of Cambridge, and you can find me on the Department of Architecture website there. Okay, great. Well, again, it's been a fantastic conversation. Um, I would love to have you on again if if you have future work and uh, hope uh, housing for and well-being. I uh, hope it's something that actually you know happens. Um, the housing <laughs> yes. sector given so many issues not only in the uk but around the world um yeah, yeah. all I right all inter- interrelated actually it is a global thing most definitely definitely it definitely is oh thanks again flora thank you very much aline <laughs>